0: into this. Our text today will be chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. Chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. And that second song when we sang, The Word Became Flesh, that's right out of our text. Actually, that whole song is based on the prologue of John, right? In the beginning was the Word, and then how we're saved, and and all of that. A glorious song that was. And um As we think about the word became flesh, sometimes we'll preach this verse around Christmas time, right? That's around when we're thinking about the incarnation. We're thinking about Jesus taking on flesh, coming into the world. You know, we're reminded by little babies and mangers and everything. And so that would distract us that he really came into the world to be the savior of the world, right? But it is a mystery. In fact, it's even a paradox to think God became a man? I mean, that short circuits the brain. I mean, to really uh, try to put your mind around that. Jesus is fully God from all eternity. But in time, he became flesh. And so it's it's an amazing thing. So he was a real man. He wasn't a figment. But he was a man without sin. Now, he did not become two persons, the God part and then the human part. He was one person. He did not give up his divine nature to take on the human nature. But rather, the Bible speaks of this idea of the dual nature of Christ, both his divinity as well as his humanity. In fact, um, our Confession of Faith, the 1689 in uh, chapter 8 on Christ the mediator paragraph 3 says this the lord jesus is the lord jesus in his human nature thus united to the divine nature in the person of his son was sanctified anointed by the holy spirit above measure having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in whom it pleased the father that all the fullness should dwell now it's also remarkable to think that, that he, he remains a man forever. Do you ever think about that? He took on flesh, he came here, he lived 33 years, he's crucified 2,000 years ago, but in heaven, he's still a man. Isn't that incredible? I mean, it, it says, uh, I mean, we will see him face to face, it says, and it says also in 1 Timothy 2 5, there is one mediator between God and man. Notice, the man, Christ Jesus, right? And so he remains a man. So all these analogies that we have, um, such as two natures, one person, right? Even we would profess, we believe in one God, but there's three persons, right? And so let's put our thinking caps on and let's dive into the text. I'm going to read 14 to 18 for us. And this will end the prologue. Verses 1 to 18, I've already mentioned it's so important. It's a prologue. He introduces themes that he'll pick back up throughout the entire gospel. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory, the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Let's pray. Father, indeed, give us understanding into this text. Lord, we thank you for that grace upon grace which those of us in Christ have received and will continue to receive until we draw our last breath. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. So we talked about last time the, the witness of John, verses 6 to 8, right? He's the one that's proclaiming, oh, he's, he's, he's the forerunner. He's saying, someone is coming, right, after me. And, um, and so he is the forerunner. And John loves the word witness, right? As I told you 29 times it occurs throughout the gospel, You have the witness of the Father, you have the witness of the Son, you have the witness of the Spirit, you have the witness of the the Holy Scriptures, you have the witness of John the Baptist, you have the witness of Christ's works. So this witness, it's testifying something about the truth of who Christ is. So he came into the world, there was this light, this true light, but yet in verse 10 it says, He was in the world, but the world made through him, the world did not know him. Men's blindness, their utter depravity. They can't perceive and understand, and so they reject Jesus Christ. And then to add insult to insult, verse 11, he came to his own. Those who were his own did not receive him. That's the idea of coming to the Jewish nation, and even the Jewish nation rejected him. But it doesn't stop there, because this beautiful verses, verses 12 and 13, talks about but, a big contrast, but, a big but. But as many as received him, like believed on him, right? To them, he gave them the right to become children of God. That's the good news. And it says even to believe in his name. That's everything that, that his character, his reputation, as far as who he is. And then we see divine sovereignty there that we're not born of blood or not born of the will of man or the, the, um, or any of that or the flesh, but of God. God is the one that causes one to become born again. Maybe you're here today and you're not born again. We have a good amount of visitors that I've never met before. Maybe you're here today and you're not converted. You're not saved. What What a... What a glorious thing to hear this good news and to cry out, Lord, I can't save myself. Would you have mercy upon me, a wicked sinner, and save me? Show me my sin. Help me to turn from my sin. Help me to embrace Christ for who he is and what he has done on the cross. I pray that would become effectual for you if you're here today. Well, as we come to our text here, really, you have the climax of the prologue, verses 1 to 18 and these verses before us. So we're going to look at it under three points. The mystery of the Incarnation, that's the first half of verse 14. And then to behold the glory of the Word, that's the rest of 14 through 16. And then verses 17 and 18, Jesus mediates a new and a superior covenant to that of Moses. So first of all, the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. It's it's an amazing thing to think of this. Even Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says, And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But notice that he's the exact representation of his nature. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ, it's in the Lord Jesus Christ that we see the Father, that we see God in the person of Christ. Of course, we know that he has ascended to heaven. He is our great high priest where he intercedes for you, child of God. He intercedes and he, he sympathizes with you. He understands the pain, the difficulties that you're going through, and he can truly sympathize. As a man, He had to come and die as a representative or as a substitute for us. But as God, he was able to pay the infinite ransom that was owed to God's justice because of our guilt as a multitude. So as a man, he's a substitute, right? A man dying for other men, but as God, he he makes that effectual by making the ransom payment effective, Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8, familiar verses, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He became obedient. He became a man Jesus had a real humanity. You know, children, he actually went to the bathroom, you know, like number one and number two, you know, as his humanity. He actually needed to be fed. He, he grew up. Um, he learned carpentry with his father, Joseph. I mean, he was a, he, he had a real humanity. He was a real person. John reveals this true nature Look over in chapter 4 with me. The familiar passage of uh, the Samaritan woman, well, right before that, in verse 6, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said, give me a drink. So there you have it right there. He's weary from the journey. He's thirsty. It's a real humanity. You might say, well, come on, he's just, he's a God man. Can't he just rise up and say, I'm not going to be thirsty, right? (laughs) Quench the thirst without water, right? No. And then, of course, that scene of Lazarus and John 11, which we'll get to, um, when Jesus therefore saw them weeping, the Jews who had came were also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit, it says, and, and troubled, deeply moved in spirit and troubled. That's an inward agony and an inward pain, as it were. Even as it says that Jesus has compassion upon the multitude at the feeding of the 5,000, that's the idea that it comes from, from down the gut, is compassion for them. A couple of verses later in John 11 says, The shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept, right? So it's a real humanity. The Word, God's very self-expression, who was both with God and who was God, became flesh. He donned our humanity. Why? He came on a mission, right? Not just to set a, a good example to be a moral teacher, to save us from our sin. That's why He came God chose to make himself known finally and ultimately in a real historical man. The Word, who was with God and who was God from verse 1, becomes flesh. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Why? So that you might become rich. Well, next, we see that he became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. Literally, tabernacled among us. This is marvel of marvels. The eternal one enters time. The invisible becomes visible, and here he comes. As Paul puts it in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us among us. It's the verb form of tabernacle. It literally means to take up residence in a tent. Now why would he why does John use this language? I think he's pointing to something. I think he's pointing to Old Testament types and shadows that were fulfilled in Christ. You think of that Old Testament tabernacle of which Andrew read in Exodus chapter 40. Remember, it's 15 feet wide, 45 feet long. It's divided into various sections. You had the outer court, which was for washing and offering of sacrifices. That's outside of this tent, right? And then you enter the holy place, and you have the golden candlestick. You have the showbread and the showbread table that's there, right? And then you enter the, the holy of holies, Right? The, the one that the high priest could go in how often? Anytime he felt like it? No, once a year. Once a year only. After making sacrifices for him and his family's own sins, he would make sacrifice for all the people's sins and go in and sprinkle that blood on the ark. And so you have that inside part. Everything about the tabernacle was symbolic of Jesus. First of all, the tabernacle was erected Where? in a big city? No, in a wilderness, right? A wilderness in the middle of nowhere. This thing is, is erected and Jesus too comes into this world and it says foxes have holes but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The pilgrimage mentality. And so in that sense it points to Jesus. Also, was it flashy with a lot of gold? Well, the temple, Solomon's temple would have a whole lot of gold, right? But the tabernacle was just what was it made of? What were the walls made of? The outer perimeter. It was like animal skins. Are animal skins particularly beautiful to look at? No. Just very, very plain. And you think in in a time when the the pyramids exist in Egypt, God chooses to meet with his people in a humble appearance of the tabernacle in the middle of nowhere, and Jesus also, it is said, that he had no stately form or majesty that we should know, notice him. The tabernacle was also at the very center of Israel's camp. Okay? As it sat there, you had three tribes to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west of the 12 tribes. So it was very central. So too... As James Montgomery Boyce says, this is highly significant in reference to Jesus, for he is the center of the Christian encampment. That is, he is the center of everything we do, everything we believe. He is the head of the church. Now, go back to Exodus 40 for a moment. You should be able to find it if you found it earlier, right? Exodus chapter 40. How many times did you notice, I'm sure Andrew noticed this, just as the Lord had commanded Moses? Repetitive theme, right? All the exact details, putting the sockets together, erecting the poles, all of this was as the Lord had commanded. Remember, the earlier chapters of Exodus all pointed to how this should be laid out. Finally, it's being erected for the very first time. And imagine all the people, what, almost 2 million people there, right? Um, looking upon this, and finally, he, it's, it says here in verse 32, and they entered the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar and washed, okay, this is um, Aaron and his sons, and then he entered the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung the veil to the gateway to the court. Thus Moses finished the work, right? Again and again, as he is commanded, Moses finishes the work. Now imagine all those people, right? Not 15, Upwards of two million people, right, from the Exodus. And then what happens? Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Imagine these two million people seeing this. Just Moses doing everything as as prescribed, but then suddenly it's done, and this glory comes Moses was not even able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now imagine that sight for all those people that were there. But that is just a type and a shadow and it pales in significance too. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus actually coming is so much further superior than even that scene that we just read of. We saw his glory. The glory John and others saw was the glory of the one and only begotten of the Father. The underlying expression was rendered the only begotten Son. D.A. Carson writes in his commentary, the glory displayed in the incarnate Word is the kind of glory a Father grants to his one and only best-loved Son, And this father is, of course, God himself. Have you perceived something of the glory of God? Do you know something of this glory? Well, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to judge your thoughts and your intentions of your heart, able to divide between the joints and marrow, able to discern all of this. The word of God is living and active. Christ is on every page of Scripture. But then also, Christ's dealings with mankind, that's beautiful, it's his glory. But some men are so dull, they can't perceive the glory of the Son of God. I commend to you John Owen's work, um, The Glory of Christ. He says this, in that works, Slothful and lazy souls never obtain one view of this glory. The lion in the road deters them from attempting. Being carnal, they abhor all the diligence of the use of spiritual means such as prayer and meditation, which to them are uneasy and unpleasant and difficult. In other words, I would just add to that, when you neglect all the means of grace, the gathering of God's people, prayer, reading the word, these types of things, yeah, you're not going to get a very crystal view of the glory of Christ. Well, let's move on. Um, the glory of the word. It says that he's full of grace and truth. There, at the uh, end of verse fourteen, he's full of grace. God, God didn't have to send his son in the world. We deserve to be left in our sin. We deserve to be judged for our sin. The gospel records all the gracious deeds that Jesus has done. All the the healing and the feeding, the raising of the dead. Pictures, glorious pictures of salvation. All truth is resident within Christ. Verse 17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. John fourteen six. most of you know this verse. Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. He embodies truth. He didn't just talk about truth. There's no mixture here. Truth also demands something, that justice be satisfied. There's no way that God can save us unjustly. He cannot ignore our sins. Grace and truth met beautifully at the cross of Christ. As Jesus cries out on the the cross, it is finished. The work of salvation for all of my people is now paid for in full. And we know that the Father was pleased with such a work because he raised him on the third day, right? To the glory of God the Father. Full here, full of grace and truth is is modifying glory. The, The glory of God manifested in the incarnate word was full of grace and truth. Why did he come? To make God known. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We have the beautiful picture of the transfiguration in the other Gospels. You remember that? When he, was, he took the inner circle, the three up, and they transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. In fact, the Gospel of Mark actually adds the little line, um, how bright, how white, like no launderer can bleach, <laughs> right? Actually, turn over to chapter 2 and verse 11. We'll get to the wedding at Cana, which is the first miracle here um, that's recorded in the Gospel of John. But look at verse 11. This is after the account of it. This is the beginning of his signs that Jesus did at Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him. So all these miracles and signs that he does is a manifestation of the glory of God. Verse 15, Jesus is preeminent. Look here, it almost kind of doesn't fit. You think, uh, verse 14, full of grace and truth, and then if you skip to 16, for of his fullness we have all received. It's it's almost like verse 15 is kind of forced in there as a parenthesis, John includes. And it says this, John testified about him crying out, this was the one of whom I said, he who comes after me. Has higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Actually, looking at that verse where it says that he um, testifies concerning him, that's a present tense; it's a continual testifying. But then that where he cries out, that's a perfect tense. It suggests that John is uh, the, the evangelist is presenting John the Baptist witness both vividly and with a progress and comprehensively. The word for cried out is krazo in the Greek, it means to croak or to cry out. And he cried out, and he pointed to Jesus, right? We'll see it next week um, in verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist cried out many times. In verse 30, look at this, this this is he on, on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man of higher rank than I, for he existed before me. It's quite a, uh, a remarkable thing, right? Even through his human nature and public appearance, uh, Jesus actually came after John, right? John was born how many months before Jesus? Roughly six months, right? And so, but, but obviously talking about the divine nature that existed in Jesus. Verse 14, Jesus provides for his people. He's preeminent. In verse 15, and he provides for him. It says, of his fullness. Now, this word is is packed full of meaning. It's the idea of abundance, uh, completion of what fills. It describes the full measure and abundance with emphasis on the completeness that Jesus gives. Of his fullness, we have all received. John MacArthur puts it like this, the church is the fullness and complement of Christ. As a head must have a body to manifest the glory of that head, so too the Lord must have the church to manifest his glory. Who is this we? Uh, of his fullness we have all received. Notice the reception, the, re- the word "receive," which we saw up in verse twelve. It's it's these those who have received Christ, right, and who have become children of God, they receive this. He gives grace upon grace, superior and abundant grace. He gives new supplies of grace every day. It's like if you took a water a cup of water out of the ocean and you took it away, and you you use that grace, and then you come back to the ocean. Is it any depleted? No. It's just there's such an abundance. And then those of you who are outside of Christ, you need to see how great your sin is, how wicked it is before a holy God. And His grace is sufficient even for you if you will become to Him. Cry out to Him, and He will save you. Martin Luther, the great reformer, says this about this idea. This spring is inexhaustible. It is full of grace and truth from God. It never loses anything, no matter how much we draw. But it remains an infinite fountain of all the grace and truth. The more you draw from it, the more abundantly it gives of the water that springs into eternal life. Grace upon grace. We can read right past this and not think about how has it impacted, how has this been manifested even in your life, right? If you've been walking with the Lord three decades and you look back at how God saved you and rescued you from the pit of destruction and, and, and he's, he's been there every single step of the way. And then we look to tomorrow and I'm going to need fresh supplies of His grace. But He gives grace upon grace. He's full of grace and truth. It's a picture of grace, just piled up high. It's a mountain of grace. It's available to us if we will become. Amy Carmichael, uh, records she shared some helpful insights from this. Actually, this phrase "grace for grace," and uh, Bishop Mule, who lived to about 1920, had written on this, and he, this really impacted her. And what he said was. The word translated "for" literally means "instead of." I think it's "anti" in the original Greek, and it means "instead of," not "who." Um, and so he illustrated it by standing at the bank of a river. The water is flowing down like this, right? And so every minute that passes, one minute after the other, and the stream is still there. So, is the same stream still there? Yes, but it isn't the same water. No, the water that passed a minute ago is down here, and there's fresh water coming. That's the picture of grace upon grace. The old water, he explained, had been displaced from view. Water instead of water. Brothers and sisters, he gives all types of grace to his people, his people that struggle in a lost and corrupt world of which we live. He gives convicting grace when we sin. He convicts us. He brings renewing grace. When our faith is weak, He brings believing grace. When we pardon, He brings that justifying grace, enduring grace, sustaining grace. He Himself has said, my grace is sufficient for you. But we need to allow God to strip away every earthly hope from us. He needs to empty you before he can fill you. If you filled yourself with all the carnality of the world and all the pleasures of the world, is there room for grace upon grace? No, that stuff needs to be removed. To the church of Laodicea, Jesus says to them, remember he says, you're lukewarm, so I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. And he goes on to say, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I advise you to buy for me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. An eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. What he is doing here is Laodicea was a very wealthy city outside of Colossae. And it was a wealthy city. It was known for its textiles and clothing. It even had an eye clinic that claimed to be able to cure the blind. And so what does he say here? He goes, you do not know. Basically, he's just directing it to everything that they put their confidence in, Right? You do not know that you're blind. Ah, I, I, I invite you to buy from me. I'll give you the true garments to clothe yourself. I'll give you the eye salve that will enable you to see. Well, let's move on to verses 17 and 18, our last point today. Jesus mediates a new and superior covenant, it surpasses the old covenant. The old covenant pointed to Christ in types and shadows, but the reality has actually come. It's not that the law was a bad thing. It was lacking, though. Just as, remember, God created Adam in the garden, and what did he say? It's not good for man to be alone. And he creates Eve, and Eve completes Adam, completes man. So, too, the law needs grace that can only come in Christ. Can we be saved by keeping the law? Nope. By By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. A writer of the Hebrews puts it like this for the law, since it was only the shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifice which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Some think that the old covenant knew nothing of grace. Right? You read the, the whole entire Old Testament. That's wrong. God reveals himself in covenant mercy to his people. He's demonstrating himself to be compassionate and to sustain them, even in the, their folly. I mean, read the book of Judges. You have this, this circular thing that occurs several times throughout the book where the people embrace idolatry. God sends a judge to warn if you do not forsake your idols, there will be judgment that comes. Often an enemy would come in and and destroy partially the, the, the people, and finally the people repent. And it even, it's ironic if you read the book of Judges, it says, and so the people put their idols away, like in a closet, and I'll come back and get them later, you know, type of thing. But that's circular idea. But God demonstrates mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace to his covenant people, and he loses none. rights to the Galatians, and says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if the law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But the scripture has shut everyone up under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those of us who believe. And of course, he says, Therefore, the law has become a tutor lead us to christ so that we might be justified by faith in fact moses even pointed to christ that's what jesus says in john 5 he tells the the pharisees you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life but it is these that testify about me there's the testify again the is testifying and then in verse 46 for if you believed moses you would believe me For he wrote about me, Jesus says. All the types of the Old Testament have been fulfilled in Christ. Romans 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was, as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. James Montgomery Boyce says this, The contrast between the law and all of its regulations and the new era of salvation by grace through faith, apart from works of the law, that has come with Jesus Christ. It is a great contrast. Under the law, God demands righteousness from people. Under grace, he gives righteousness to his people, under the law, righteousness is based on Moses and good works. Under grace, it's based on Christ and Christ's very character. So Jesus is the true temple. He's the true tabernacle. He is the reality as he has come. and says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. This is absolute, it's very strong in the original, And no one, absolute, absolutely no one has seen God at any time. The point is that no one has ever seen God in a, in a full and complete way. Even when Moses said, let me see your glory, what happens? He puts him in. He says, "No man can see me and live." So he puts him in the cleft of the rock. Covers as he passes by, and he sees his backside. So Moses had a partial view. 1 John four twelve. He says it again: No one has seen God at any time. Right? Paul writing um, to Timothy in his first letter. A bookends at the beginning of the letter and at the end. This very truth he says in. 1 Timothy one seventeen. Now to the King eternal, immortal, the invisible, and the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then at the end, in 6.16, he says, Who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and glory. Now, Notice how it says there at the end, he has explained him. This is a fairly rare Greek word. It occurs six times in the New Testament. It means to lead, or literally lead out, or to unfold, or declare something. It's actually where we get the word exegesis from, right? It's where we get the idea of hermeneutics from. And it's an amazing thing. You see it on the road to Emmaus, the two disciples that are there in Luke 24, 35, and they began to relate their experiences, explain their experiences, that's the same word, on the road and about how he was recognized by them breaking bread. So the exegesis explaining him. That's what we seek to do, explaining the text. It's exegesis even in the preaching from the, from the pulpit here at this church, those of us that preach. John MacArthur says this, Jesus is the only one qualified to exegete and interpret God. Since no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and to anyone to whom the Son wills, to reveal him. <clears throat> There's a hymn that's written based on, on these, uh, this, this verse here. It says, Thou art the everlasting word, the Father's only Son. God manifestly seen and heard the heavens, beloved one. Worthy, O Lamb of God, art thou? To every knee to thee should bow. In thee most perfectly expressed The Father's glories shine, of the full deity possessed, eternally divine. Worthy, O Lamb of God, art thou, that every knee to thee should bow. So the emphasis of the prologue is the word, right? We saw it all the way up in verse 1. It's this revelation of the word. It's uh, the theme, it's dramatically reinforced by the remarkable parallels of verse 1 and 18. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And here it says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Have you beheld his glory? If you do you know something of the glory of Christ? Let me quote John Owen again. By the way, that work, "The Glory of Christ," is available free online. You can just Google that. It's exceptional. By beholding the glory of Christ by faith, we shall find rest for our souls. Our minds are apt to be filled with troubles and fears and cares and dangers and distresses and ungoverned passions and lust, but these are thoughts are filled with chaos and darkness and confusion. But where the soul is fixed on the glory of Christ, then the mind finds rest and peace to be spiritually minded in peace. See the glory of Christ, the God-man, fully divine, fully man. See the glory of Christ, the gracious work of provision as he dies on the cross for sinners. See the glory of Christ and his triumph as he rose victoriously from the grave. And then see his glory in the hearts and minds of God's people. Really, that's a beautiful thing. The family of God. And and even you share in his glory. Jesus will pray in John 17. And the glory which you have given to me, he's praying to the Father, I have given to them. It's a beautiful thing. We can reflect that glory. God's people await even a greater experience of God's dwelling among us. It says in Revelation 21, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. They shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Paul says, Now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face, when these realities become real when we pass from this life and we're given eyes to see, then we will behold his glory. Have you believed in Jesus Christ? The words of John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb. Look to Jesus Christ. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it does not return void. We pray that you would help us to consider these things even as we go about our business, even this next week. I pray especially for any who do not know you. We thank you, O God, for one that you have saved recently, even in our midst. We thank you that we can witness a baptism, even today, receive our thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.